Hello again, I'm Mason. Welcome back to episode 2 of Level 0 Literacy. This week the gang and I are going to be tackling Bioshock, a personal favorite of mine. This episode is going to contain full spoilers for the game, as well as discussion that contains, but is not limited to, body horror, grotesque violence, child abuse, worst of all, Ayn Rand. Ugh. Listener discretion is advised. Thanks for listening. literacy our little video game book club my name is mason i'm here with buck and sam today we are talking about bioshock which is a 2007 action shooter like first person shooter game designed by ken levine out of 2k boston later named irrational games the game takes place uh, in an underwater utopian city called Rapture, where a great mind of the 1920s has squirreled away down at the bottom of the sea and discovered a new way of altering genetics of the people he has taken with him to disastrous results. The game is influenced by earlier games that Ken Levine worked on, most notably the first two System Shock games. Of the two System Shocks, Bioshock is most clearly influenced by its nearly direct predecessor, System Shock 2, of which several story beats are mirrored and some themes carry through from game to game. Quick question. Yeah, quick answer. Have either of you played the System Shock games? I know that I've sat down in front of one when I was like eight years old or something because my dad had it on his computer but i don't remember anything about it no i haven't as, played system shock yeah I, I i'm i as a zoomer of the group i've never played a system shock games i had always heard that they were like these legendary first person shooter rpgs from kind of before my era because i think system shock 2 was 99 98 or 99 when that game came out yeah that would put me around eight years old so yeah sounds yeah. about right <laughs> So, first thing I would like to open on would be the general kind of story beats of Bioshock, which go somewhat like this. You open as a passenger on a flight, which goes down into the ocean in a violent crash, leaving you, the player character, swimming alone in the ocean when you see a giant lighthouse springing up from the endless sea in all directions. Going into the lighthouse, after swimming up, you find a special, sort of a personal submarine vehicle that you take down into a a type of, like, what would be, like, the time frame? Is it, like, Roaring Twenties, or would it be, like, later than that? It's, uh, so I believe this game is supposed to be set during the Cold War. It, it's set in, like, it. literally 1960. Yeah. Because uh, yeah. 1959 is before the Civil War. Uh, before like, the Civil no, War. No, yeah. I don't think it is actually. No, 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 no. no. The Civil War in Rapture. Oh, okay. Okay. I, I don't know how. Should I re say something else? Should I just say uh, 1959 is before when a story relevant thing happens, or are we going to stick with this? Yeah, this game, it's like squarely set. I, you, you, there's a lot of like good bits about the hysteria of the cold war mm -hmm. as far as like two massive governmental agencies 
being like the major enemy of like the state, quote unquote, of Rapture. Yeah, that's very true. I, I, I use that. I use the term state very loosely because I think that in a lot of ways it's not really a state mm-hmm. as far as like an actual like system and body of government. But Andrew Ryan doesn't want you to say it is. Yeah, yeah that's true. Exactly. <laughs> I think I think he would rather you call it a capital, but not with an O, but with an A. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, as you get to the bottom of the ocean, you find hidden away there a giant city with neon lights that seem impossibly set in the water around them. Huge towering skyscrapers with their foundation set at the bottom of the ocean. And landing inside, you quickly find that something terrible is going on. As the first thing you see is a uh, murder. And then you must uh, set out with the help of your new friend, Jack Atlas, uh, in order to find your way out and hopefully one day escape. So at this point, I'll kind of open the floor. Let's talk about some important overarching themes. Let's talk about like what this game is trying to say about the world. I think the first and most obvious thing is that it seems like a rendition or a a commentary on Atlas Shrugged, which is an old Ayn Rand novel about how great minds kind of build their sort of golden utopia on the hill and then live in paradise while the world around them kind of falls into disgrace and ruin right yeah and 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 so like it, it, we don't even have to say seems like ken levine has said directly yeah. yeah i was reading ayn rand and this game came about because i wanted to say who is this person and what world would they build yeah, absolutely. <laughs> just to be uh, clear, it's not it is not speculation yeah. or seems like. <laughs> yeah, he he has he has stated in multiple interviews that the Ayn Rand's like philosophy is the main thing that he followed for the BioShock series. And it's interesting the interesting thing to me is in some of the interviews that he did, he stated that this wasn't really meant to be necessarily a critique of Ayn Rand specifically, but more just a glimpse into what happens when you take philosophy too far when you like take when you are as a person so engrossed in like one philosophy that you take it to the extreme what does it look like when you do that and this is something i think you see a lot with artists with like especially people who are working on products of philosophy is well a lot of times when you do see these like dystopias it's, it's less an exploration of like necessarily a critique of the philosophy itself but more a critique of following a philosophy or or allowing yourself to get in rapture of philosophy and lose your sense of self and giving it up into whatever it is that you are trying to follow so sort of a sort of a commentary about things like zealotry about over dedication to an idea to the point where you lose recognition of personalities and the rights and the feelings of people yeah, um, and i i will say Despite you know, despite the thing I just said, where it, I think the developers and that was the developers' spoken intent, the, the actual game itself does end up being a fairly striking piece of criticism, I would say, towards the concepts and philosophies of Ayn Rand. It's worth noting that despite the fact that Ken Levine gets sort of top billing, and maybe I'm just saying this because I watched the H Bomber guy essay yesterday, despite the fact that Ken Levine gets 
top billing for the game. He's not the only person who wrote. He's not the only person who conceptualized for the game, programmed for it, designed things. There's a myriad uh, minds and artists who took part in this who probably had a vision for what the game would be and what the game would say that was closer to what ended up being the final result, right? Yeah. And uh, I would like to emphasize Andrew Ryan, specifically, the guy who built Rapture and the primary antagonist for most of the game, is a very compelling character through, like, the audio logs and just his base interactions with you on what exactly an extremist, like, an extreme Ayn Rand, libertarian is the word, zealot would end up like if you did take that philosophy to the extreme, right? Like, I think they did a very good job. There is no waffling on who Andrew Ryan is and what Andrew Ryan does. To give an example, when you walk into the area of Rapture that produces the oxygen, you can find an audio log that talks about how he owned a forest, and the American government wanted to turn it into a national park. And Andrew Ryan goes, nah, this is my forest I own, and says he burned it down. Sure did. Uh, he said, if, if I can't have my forest, nobody can. I think were his words. One thing that's interesting to me is that a lot of the, a lot of the more critique of this game, as far as you know, its political ideology and the like, comes in the audio logs. You don't get, you do get like touches and flashes of it through the gameplay, or like the main, just like going through the 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 storyline, the main, the adventure line, right? The adventure line does take you through some concepts, but if you really want to feel the full like breadth of the depravity of all of the things that happen in the background of Rapture and even before Rapture was a thing, you really have to do you really do have to touch into that audio logs, which I think is a little bit of a weakness personally. I think you're asking if you want to get the full like picture if you want to get the full image of what's going on i just wish you wouldn't tuck it away or like info dump it as much because there is i think when you ask your players to like seek out the information themselves there is a little bit of disconnects that can happen like for me sometimes i would pick up audio logs and i would lose them to what was happening in front of me Oh it yeah. Was, yeah. I, I found it oh, yeah. a lot of times it felt very hard to like just stop. You know, pick up an audio log and stop and then just sit there and listen to it because I it just wasn't engaging in the way where it's like ah, I'm just I'm so like interested in all of every single one because there's a lot of audio logs. I'm so interested in every single one of these audio logs that I'm gonna like stop and listen to them each one I pick up. Yeah, I probably did that for maybe like thirty percent of them, but for at a certain point it's like I'm not gonna like just sit here and listen to it. Which is a shit. I think is a shame because a lot of the, a lot of the philosophy of the game is very well captured. The essences are very well captured within some of the things that they plant around for you to find, and that is designed as intended for better or worse. Ken has said he doesn't like cutscenes. He doesn't like story exposition. To the point of saying in the GD in a GDC talk shortly after the release of the game that people don't care about game story, which is a really interesting thing for someone whose main job is to write a game story to talk about. Yeah. And now I don't I don't want to say I, I don't want to misrepresent his point. His point is 
people don't care about your story right off the bat. You have to make them care, which do- is a thing that makes sense. But I can definitely see that in the way this game was designed, where if you want to really understand Rapture, you have to go out of your way, find the audio logs, and find like the visual storytelling. There are so many secret places and secret stories in the game without audio logs or anything. They're just visual. That if you do not go out of your way, way out of your way to experience, you'll never see. I think it strikes a nice medium, in a sense, in between like what we see with Dark Souls and what mm. we see with like modern, what I think we call walking simulators, where it mm. is mostly just a story without a, a lot of gameplay. Where Dark Souls is like an extreme, there is no lore. We will present you with no lore in any of your gameplay. You have to go find it yourself, pretty much. And then walking simulators are there is no game. Enjoy the yeah, story. Yeah. <laughs> So I do, I do appreciate that. I do like that, and I like what I, I do enjoy what the game is going for as far as using a more dynamic choice of storytelling to get its points across. I do think that there is a world where the audio logs as a point of lore would be like the perfect device if they had, you know, like the big players of the game, Atlas, Fontaine, Tenenbaum, and Ryan were, there were just no audio logs. And then all of these like side characters, Duchong, Cohen, what was... Um, I am McClintock or someone else. Yeah, McClintock, yeah. Atlas's lover and then uh, the plastic surgeon. Those mm-hmm. folks were just like all like audio logs. So like the characters that you like never really uh, see or interact with in like a main story capacity... Like, you could fill out the world based on, like, what's happening to them. You know, that's not the game we got. But I do want to say, like, one of the huge strengths of the game is the, like, very, very biting use of visual metaphor and set-piece storytelling and, like, small world building through level design. I think this game does a fantastic job at things like that. There were so many moments. There were so many moments throughout the game, like, especially, like, when you first walk into the lighthouse and you have the giant Ryan statue like staring down at you intimidatingly as he sort of monologues about his vision and then you get down and you see the great chain being like manipulated by this flexing enormous fist. There's many parts that illustrate like the depravity and the chaos of rapture like where you'll come upon like a dead body with a shotgun next to it where someone has unfortunately committed suicide rather than become a splicer like the i think that is where the storytelling of of bioshock is at its absolute best in these small visual metaphor or visual or like these show don't tell moments and you know maybe it's because the audio logs can get kind of droning and samey but like Oh my god, there's so many so many of these like set pieces and and things like this were breathtaking to me. Yeah, I think that I think that is where the game excels is the visual storytelling where it does have a lot of that show don't tell mentality and there's I if I were to replay if I were to replay BioShock in the near future, I think the biggest thing that I would be looking for is those like is those smaller visual details that they put into the game that most people I don't think would notice on their first playthrough, and I think a lot of people probably wouldn't notice on their second playthrough. And maybe not even without a little bit of guidance, a little bit of, like, 
the hands to kind of like an article or something to kind of give you an idea of like, hey, here's some like smaller things to look for while you're going through this world. These are the kind of things that you can find if you're willing to just go out of your way just a little bit to find them. Yeah. There, um, are, there are a lot. I think the artists did like an immaculate job filling, just making the world chock full of details. And I honestly think it's like kind of a shame that the story was not like mainly told that way, but just because it seems like on its face that they're so talented at being able to communicate things that way. You were saying something, Buck? I'm sorry. I don't know. I think they accomplished a lot of that, didn't they? Like, you walk around and you can find someone who was tortured during the war between Ryan and Fontaine, right? You can find... Uh, I remember this guy in, in the fishery. In the fishery. You can find the parents of the child who you hear about throughout like the first third ish of the game, uh, the, the third to first third to half where you're, you're experiencing these parents who lose their child to becoming a little sister. And if, if you follow like their audio logs and their story, you find their dead bodies in the hotel room they were staying in. You know, I, I think, that, yeah. I think they do a lot of that. Now, if you don't mind, I'd kind of like to jump more towards the end of the game, because there's a really weird thing that I want to ask about, which is why do they give you a choice with the Little Sisters, specifically because you only get the quote-unquote good ending if you harvest none of them? Well, it, it's the same... <laughs> I'm not sure if I understand your question because this is like this is a this is a question that's posed by a lot of modern games. Honestly, do, do you, is it that you think the other endings are better? So, so there's two endings. There's three. There's actually three. There's three endings. What is the third? So there's there's one ending you get when probably the one all of us got. If you save every yeah. little sister, you take them in the bathosphere back up to the surface, and they go on to live normal lives. The second ending is if you harvest at least one, but not all, of the Little Sisters, where when they give you the key to the city, you take it, become an Adam, uh, Adam-spliced, like, crazy person, like, and take basically take Fontaine's place. Eventually, you let the splicers loose on the world. The third is if you harvest all of them, you get mostly the same ending, but you get, like, extra dialogue from Tenenbaum about, like the evil you have wrought and like what you did uh, to the children. Okay. See, I didn't find those two endings meaningfully different enough. Oh, to, okay. All right. Uh, I got you. I got you. <laughs> like, yes, the dialogue is different, but the visuals are literally the same. I don't know. I feel bad for jumping to that because I kind of wanted to talk about your character's specific place in the story because I think that is kind of interesting to talk about and discuss. V very much so, I think. So... Well, I don't know, you know, give give us, like, the, the quick rundown of, like, what you're thinking about it, then. What it seems like happened is you are Andrew Ryan's child. Yeah. From a stripper? Yes. And somehow, Dr. Suchon is his name, right? Yes. Accelerates your growth? And Fontaine and Tannenbaum are working together to turn you into literally a sleeper agent. To turn you against Ryan. And in making you, they imprinted memories on you. And, you know, you're literally a sleeper agent. You somehow get activated on the plane. And you come down here and experience this. And I, I don't know if we've made it 
aware that Atlas, the person who guides you through the first part of this, is Fontaine, who is controlling you. And I think I think it's an interesting thing, but I don't really know how interesting it is because it, it's kind of like a med- meta commentary on you are literally a video game character, right? Right. I don't know. If I have to, like, think about the, the main character's place in the world, I almost, like... My ideas, I think a lot about, like, predeterminism, fate, like, the the circumstances of one's birth kind of shaping, like, their place in the world. That was a lot of what I took away from, from those elements of the story. There's, I think there is a little bit of a meta-commentary, right, about their, your, you know, the realization by the character that they're not in control. I don't necessarily know if the intent was to tie it to a video game like mm-hmm. you know you you are being controlled by a player as a character in a game so you don't actually have any real control personally i didn't really like the detail just because it almost made me feel as if some of my choices as a player were less impactful i was just doing the will of someone who directed me to do do them and- because i think a lot for me a lot of what sells things in more narratively driven video games are ones that are like this these are things that are happening as you the player making a choice whereas here it's like you didn't make any choice you know theoretically you didn't make any choices all of the choices were made for you by people that were manipulate manipulating your character throughout the course of the game the only thing they real the only thing it really gives you any freedom of choice over is how you decide to deal with the little girls and as a result, that ends up being the main thing that dictates how your story ends. And so that's why. So this is why I want to ask this, because as I was watching the director commentary for the remastered version, they didn't love that there were two endings. And the guy who the the director, not Levine, said, "I really like the good happier ending, and the other ending is there because Two K said they wanted two endings." Oh, I see. And the reason I ask, why is there a choice, is because Atlas could just tell you to harvest the little sisters. Yeah, that's what I was just about to say. When you get <laughs> to your first little sister, it's presented like a, um, it's presented like this, not, a part of it is a moral dilemma, and part of it is like, ooh, do you choose to, do you choose to trust Tenenbaum? Who, near the end of the game, like, you have to, she's like gonna deprogram you anyway. But like... And- Atlas could just say, "Would you kindly harvest the little sister?" And you have to do it. It would, which, and, it would give away the ghost for the twist. But like, I don't know. we'll get to that in a second. Yeah. And Tenenbaum could say, "Would you kindly?" She knows. She, she knows know, the. Yeah. She knows the activation word. I almost wonder. <laughs> I, I, well, so then to that point, I almost wonder if they, you know, their get around point is, if you give both, if since both the characters are in the know about the situation. They kind of mm. they kind of cancel each other out, so maybe they have maybe they felt pressured into a situation where this is something where they can't really give you know give themselves the control because you know maybe they don't know what happens if they're given two directives that are contradicting. Here's here's my thinking on the situation. At this point in the game, Andrew Ryan is not dead, and Fontaine and Tenenbaum oh, both right. both sort of were part of creating the player character with the understanding that you're going to be a tool used to overthrow Ryan, right? So maybe at this point in their game, 
they're still united by a common cause. And also, Atlas still is interested in manipulating you as Jack Atlas. Mm -hmm. So he probably doesn't want to give give away to Tenenbaum that he he's secretly Frank Fontaine. Right. Yeah, I, I do I do think that there's also the fact that there's no real reason for them to be antagonistic towards each other yet. In, in the same vein that like they have a common enemy, but realistically I there's no real reason for them to go at each other until the third act where you know you are saved and then turned onto atlas as a result of being saved yeah but at the same time like andrew ryan's kingdom is like actively crumbling and he is almost assuredly hopeless to save it you know when you get to him he simply tells you to kill him anyway because he understands that he's in a losing position in the sort of metaphorical chess game that he's he's also not going to kill his son I i think that's more the thing he explicitly says i see who you are I can't like he says I can't stop you because I think Andrew Ryan is like this is the you know the extreme philosophy thing yeah right? like yeah. this is this is my progeny I'm not going to lift my hand against it and he all the, the whole of uh, a man chooses a slave obeys thing right which I think is I think that's the best moment of this game oh yeah when Andrew Ryan is there and he just tells you to kill it right like and he's like look i'm choosing this right and i it's weird because i don't understand what there is to save everyone on rapture is either insane or a splicer every person you interact with except for tannenbaum which i mean i don't know you know jewish girl raised by nazis is an interesting way for her to go and (laughs) It's also very hard to call her still a denizen of Rapture when she's stuck in a special hidden chamber in the sewers with the remnants of the little girl program, effectively removing herself from the Rapture society to begin with, right? And so it's like, what is there to save? What hope does Ryan have? So maybe that is partially also him giving up, right? Like, he sees... I I wonder if he actually sees his failure at the end, or not. Because that's not very clear, right? I think there's multiple points in the game where Andrew Ryan speaks to you over the radio where it, it felt to me like he he sort of has a good grasp of like, you know, you're in the end game, like it, it's unsavable, right? Because like you're already so far, like you, you created the Big Daddy program because, the, because you created the Little Girl program. You created the Little Girl program because people are starting wars over Adam and like your your vision of like what the city was going to be is already just like so far out of out of reach for you at this point because of the consequences of like this sort of unbridled unethical march towards scientific advancement right so now we have to talk about maybe the not so great part of the game the third act starting with the reveal yeah, we've we've sort of been talking about a lot of these things so far, but uh, I'll I'll go over it just sort of properly. After you get to a certain point of the game, you are reaching sort of Andrew Ryan's like living quarters. You have reached where he's holed himself up in the hopes of hiding from the efforts of Fontaine and Tenenbaum and Atlas to 
you know, Frank slash Atlas to get him and kill him. You come into a room with pictures of the player character plastered on the wall with the words, would you kindly painted in blood. You then have flashbacks to Jack Atlas giving you directions using the phrase, would you kindly. And it's revealed that the player character is a sleeper agent, the progeny of Andrew Ryan. And as you sort of come to Andrew Ryan's office, I guess he realizes that his story is over and reveals to you that you have been brainwashed and programmed from a young age to follow any direction. If given the code phrase, would you kindly, after which he directs you to kill him. You like brutally murder him with a golf club, which is like sickening because it ends up lodged in his brain. After which the person you've been directing, who's been directing you rather through the first portion of the game, Jack Atlas reveals that he is Andrew Ryan's main sort of business competition, Frank Fontaine, who you learned about through both Fontaine Fisheries and Fontaine Futuristics, two of his like wildly successful businesses. He had adopted a fake identity in order to hide from you the fact that you were going to be used as a tool to get Andrew Ryan and presumably frustrate his efforts in some way. And the last, I'd say, third or fourth of the game, roughly, is a much shorter, concentrated series of levels where you uh, deprogram yourself and finally go fight Frank Fontaine and kill him. And something I want to bring up here that really bothers me about the third act is all the awesome immersive storytelling and interesting stuff that you can find and discover kind of just dies in this act there is very little of that left oh, hold on i'm gonna push back on that a little bit i think it's i think it's harder because the levels are shorter the story urgency kind of yes. keeps you pushing forward I think the levels themselves are still crafted with a hand that wants to tell a story. In fact, when we talk later about the moments that stood out to us in the game, I'm going to talk about a level from Artemis Apartments. A level. I'm going to okay. talk about a specific moment from there. Okay. Might have missed so something. I, I, I want to talk about the twists because I, I know we've talked a little bit outside the podcast, and I know we have differing like thoughts on it. And I think some of that is a result of when we played this game for the first time. So for some context, Mason has played this game multiple times. Did you say this is your fifth playthrough, I believe, Mason, yeah, right? right? By my, that's like an estimation. I, I mean, yeah. I played it first in 07, so I don't have a perfect memory. Yeah. This, and this is mine and Buck's first time getting to the twist of this game, as far as I'm aware. Mm -hmm. For me, personally, I did not really feel the weight of the twist and i think that is a result of modern media being so saturated with the twist villain like the twist villain is a staple of most modern media at this oh point. yeah oh yeah if you look at any disney movie made in the last like five years you it almost inevitably has a twist villain just watch she hulk got got a twist villain multiple so, twist villains <laughs> so for me i wasn't really able to get shocked by the twist or get shocked by the fact that there is a big twist in this game because i have been so saturated and almost programmed to like expect things like this to happen in pieces of media whereas mason i know back when you played this i imagine around when the game came out it was that was such 
you know, twist villains and stuff were such an anomaly back then that you were able to sort of get a different, a different approach, a different life out of what you were presented with. Oh yeah. And actually here's the kind of funny thing that specific story beat I'm pretty sure is carried over from system shock Two, like beat for beat. But since I didn't play system shock Two, I, it hit me like incredibly in like in such a, new and like untainted light you know what i mean you still got to live with it yeah absolutely sit with it now can i present a different criticism of the twist it's kind of something i just thought about but the thing i definitely like least about it is you don't know anything about your character oh yeah the whole oh no your family is fake you were brainwashed blah 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 I, you don't know any of that because the only thing you see is flashes and glimpses. And I, you know, it's still theoretically, technically a twist, but it resonates less with me just because your character doesn't have a voice. Yeah, you don't have any any sympathy for the character you're playing because they didn't really put in ways for you to gain that. And that definitely makes sense. I think I think like part of why that doesn't hit super hard in in the modern day is because back in 07 or whatever the idea that a character was like a self insert was doing a lot of weight lifting if you if you know if you understand what I'm saying it was bearing a yeah. lot of load the idea that like the player character was a blank slate for the player holding the controller and to you're supposed to like. I think you're you're supposed to think about like how would I feel if I if I understood this about myself, right? But you know, in the year 2022, now that we have a wealth of games where you can like give very strong definition to a character in in narrative video games, um, it it feels like it kind of falls on its face. While it was revolutionary and groundbreaking at the time. It probably, just by way of how storytelling has evolved in video games, it probably simply can't hold the same weight that it used to. Here's a question, then. You think? Do you think if they were to remake this game today, if Bioshock never existed, and then, you know, tomorrow they release the game, do you think they would, uh, do you think they would play it differently? And there's no right or wrong answer to this. Just as, as someone who is very familiar with the series and kind of familiar with the creative vision of the people behind it are do you think that if if given the opportunity to do it again and with a modern sensibility do you think they would change that i think the best like way i could think through that would be to look at later bioshock games that were developed closer to today and in for instance bioshock infinite the player character booker dewitt is given a ton of texture through Mm. storytelling and so i have to say that like it would if if Bioshock were made in earnest, just completely brand new today, it would it would be way different. And I think the twist would hit a lot better. Gotcha. Alright, so let's move on to our next segment. Let's break down one moment in the game that really spoke to us individually as far as communicated the theme very well or drove home a message or a theme of the game to you. Buck, we'll start with you. Thanks, I'm going to take the easy go-to bat here. <laughs> so so the first level of this game is very fascinating to me. And when I say first level, I mean working through the plastic surgeon's office. Yeah. 
because it gives you so much of what Rapture is and what Rapture does to people in that in a place with no regulation, in a place where anyone can relentlessly pursue their art, <laughs> right? Um, as you explore this place, there's a doctor, a plastic surgeon, I can't remember his name, and you find these audio logs where he becomes obsessed with perfecting people. And you know, well, you don't know, but this is how you find out what plasmids kind of do to people in the relentless pursuit of perfection of the human body you kind of corrupt your body and mind and when you meet this doctor he's literally just talking to himself insane ripping someone apart making them beautiful you know and i think it i think it is a microcosm of what the whole story is trying to tell in the first level. And I think, you know, that hooked me in 2007. And then because I didn't own the game, I didn't finish it. But I have always had that in my hand. I've never forgotten that experience in, you know, 15 years or whatever, since I saw and experienced that for the first time. Absolutely. I think I particularly think that character's audio logs are like some of the best when he talks about like, oh, finally, I'm free of these like ethics boards who are holding me back. And then like, you know, you get to the middle sections of his of his story, and it's like, you know, well, maybe being ugly is actually unethical, because pretty people yeah. have to perceive you being <laughs> ugly around them. And you get to the end, and he's like, yeah, I cut a guy's entire face off and replaced it with another, like, half of a lady's face, and then half of another guy's face, because I thought... And also, wouldn't it be fun if faces could be squares? Well, he doesn't say it like that, but, you yeah, know... He kind of does. Not directly. <laughs> yeah. I It is It is very... I do think... I do think it the the first segment of this game does do a really good job of just dropping you in and not it's relentless it is relentlessly it is relentless it is unapologetic and i think it needed to be that way if i'm being honest because i think if they tried to ease you into it the the themes and the messaging behind the game wouldn't really hit in the same way whereas it is now you are getting bombarded it is like a loudspeaker has been put next to you and it is just blasting music into your ears and it works it works really well it, it, it is it's off-putting but in a way where it's it creates a curiosity rather than a an interest in leaving and yeah i agree like that the first level of the game is like some of the most compelling content of the game as you would expect because it would be like the opening paragraph of an essay the hook to get you in but like yeah i completely agree it's amazing sam so my one moment for this game kind of ties into my personal life, I think, where it's the first time you step into the artist's area and you see the first statue. And mm. me in video games, I just like to go around and hit things for fun. <laughs> it's fun oh, to just hit things. Oh, I know things. what you're going to say. And so the first moment where you have out your your melee tool and you just hit the statue and just blood comes out. Yeah. There's something about that that's very it just hits. It hits it hits very nicely. It's not necessarily like a sh I think when you get to that point it's not necessarily a shock because it's oh, you know, there's like that a pause. There's like a moment where you're like that just happened. And then there's another moment where it's like well, that does that is in line with 
all the things that I've been presented with in this game so far. This does make sense. No. So, and then as you progress through that chapter, you just you do you do see the depravity of an artist who is just trying to, to capture the human essence, right? And me personally, as someone who has worked in artistic fields and in artistic endeavors, I think there is always I've seen levels of people willing to go too far to capture the human spirit, the human emotion, you know. And I th- obviously this is like an extreme degree of that where we are literally casting people into statues, right? I do not think that is it's something that anyone would do in real life. But, you know, any, any like a reasonable person would do in life. But I do know reasonable people that have gone done and done things that are questionable in the name of trying to better capture a character, the human experience, and all of that stuff. So that that personally hit very hard for me just because there are people who try to do things like this not depraved like this but there there's a line right there's a there's a very thin line you work you walk as an artist where especially in my backgrounds in theater especially as someone who is in theater there's a thin line you walk where you might begin to lose your own humanity or sanity or whatever you want to call it so yeah, I, th- I think I think if you were looking for specific examples of that, you could go look at people who do. If you go back and look at what most people said about Jared Leto for the mm. first Suicide Squad movie, that's kind of the idea that I'm talking about. Where it's like it's very easy for actors or people of creative minds to go too far and do things that are just too over the top for the sake what they believe is quote unquote the sake of creating good art for their for their art for their creative process you mean right yeah were you gonna say something about well i i had a question because at the point that you see the first statue have you already like met and interacted with cohen because i actually don't remember um, you have yeah he like yeah, talks yeah, to you over the radio yeah yeah does that happen before or after he tells you to go back like he pushes you away from the bathysphere the first place that that can happen is you get out of the bathysphere. Cohen gives you his little dancing routine with his uh, okay, yeah, yeah. plastered up guys. Then you head out into the main area. Oh, I see. Okay. And there's there are a couple of those guys like already there. And then uh, an- I couldn't I couldn't tell you which one where specifically it happens, but mm. you know. Another question while we're here, if you don't mind, can you fight and or kill Cohen? Because yes. I didn't. I, I was just like, you know what? You can live, guy. There there are, in fact, two times that you can fight Cohen. The first is after you complete his quests, he'll walk out and give you your little tonic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he'll say, like, oh, the other one, that's my muse. I'm the only one who has the key, so you can't get to that. You can attack uh... and kill him. He's basically a really beefed up Houdini slicer. Splicer. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't kill him, later in the game, you can visit his apartment he will have two Houdini splicers with his shot collars on them dancing. And he'll say, like, all right, little moth, don't interrupt them. They're dancing for me right now. If you interrupt them, he'll come down out of his apartment, which is the only way to open his apartment door, and attack you. And you have the same boss fight, essentially, except you've got a lot more stuff and you can kill him very easily. And up in his apartment, there's actually a power to the people machine. And a couple of audio logs, actually. His um, Did you get the audio log where he's like... Uh, he? Did his he performed his poem, The White Rabbit? Where he had to 
he wants the ears off? Yeah. Uh, yes, I did. If you go up into his apartment, he has like a hundred white rabbit masks that Splicers wear, just like taped onto the wall, like all over his, like looking at his bed mostly. So it seems like when I first got, so this was the first playthrough I actually got into his apartment. I had first, when I, I had always thought that the white rabbit poem was about himself, about like some sort of self-destructive tendency he was wrestling with. However, now that I've been into his apartment and I've seen like the rabbits are outside seemingly looking in at him, I think it's about like, I think the poem is about the prying eyes of his audience mm -hmm. um, and how he wants to like, he thinks they're like not worthy to listen to his art. So he wants to rip their ears off, mm -hmm. I, I think. But yeah, those are that... two times you can fight and kill Cohen. That makes sense. That's very interesting. I'm really sad I missed out on that. I didn't even... It's, I left him alive and then didn't even see him in the apartment area. It's way out of the way. You would not be fault. I had to, like... This was the first of my many playthroughs I've actually done it. You would... I would say you would not be faulted for, like, not not getting in there. <laughs> mm -hmm. I actually think Cohen Sanders is an incredibly compelling character. I think there are... To be responsible here i think there's aspects of his character that have not aged particularly well especially as we understand the writing of gay characters in fiction um mm -hmm. he comes off kind of as a sexual predator in some in some ways he comes off as like very manipulative and like overly affectionate but like the exploration of an artist in a in a society without ethics in a society where like in, in one like rapture i think is like super interesting and i think that they did a generally good job with cohen it was definitely of all of all the chat of all the like segments in this game that was definitely the one that i found myself the most wrapped up in absolutely i did i yeah i love his level a lot i guess i'll go into my uh moment now i've talked a lot about the visual storytelling of the game Funny enough, one of the one of the moments that hit me super hard was late in the game, in, in one of the sections that the game is trying to push you to progress as fast as possible, and therefore it's very easy to miss. Near the end of the game, you have to go find Dr. Suchong's apartment in order to get a serum that will deprogram your brain and allow you to go fight Frank Fontaine. Now, there you move into this apartment section, and there are two apartment complexes but the story only necessitates that you go to one the two apartment complexes are called artemis and hephaestus which is a reference to greek mythology where artemis is a a goddess who sprang forth from zeus's head she's like this revered huntress who's worshipped all over greece or ancient greece if you believe like that kind of mythos and then there's hephaestus who is this like ugly rejected like laborer who Hera, like, threw off of Mount Olympus because he's, like, disgusting and deformed, and then mm. went on to live on the side of Mount Olympus, like, forging things, basically doing manual labor for all of eternity. And so the, so the Artemis apartment building is for wealthy people, um, and the Hephaestus apartment complex is for the poor people of Rapture, which I found incredibly, like, I, I really loved... I don't know, it's just, like, a little detail, a little touch. And, like... When you, uh, as you move through the game, a lot of the splicers, like, when they go to attack you, they'll call you, like, a welfare hound. Or, like, they, like, insult you by, like, calling you poor. Which I always was like, oh, it's just, like, a little, like, throwaway thing because this is, like, rapture. It's all capitalism. And then you, like, see the conditions the poor live in. And it's like, oh, no, they're, like, they're being horrendous to you when they say that. And I think the, 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 <laughs> the, 
moment that really struck me as to like how great of a world building kind of element that is, is your HUD when you walk into the Hephaestus apartments doesn't say Hephaestus apartments. It says Andrew Ryan philanthropic home for the poor. It like doesn't match the map. I don't know. I thought that was really good. Just like as an understanding that like Andrew Ryan doesn't believe in, you know, government safety nets for people. He doesn't believe in like treating the poor. Well, he's, he's, his philosophy is very much that like you deserve your lot in life. What your wealth and fortune is an expression of like how good of a person you are and that he won't even dignify the less fortunate in life with any sort of help or reprieve from their suffering without the, without the ability to plaster his name all over it and use it as publicity as propaganda for himself. Mm. Um, And Fontaine used that to literally just make his own army and help himself come to a little bit more power. Right. Yeah. That's, that's like part of the story of how you learn a lot of that in the fisheries is like Fontaine was promising a better future for all of the manual laborers. And like they, they rallied behind him because of that, because they were like treated so poorly by Ryan's like system. I don't know. That was like, that was such a cool, like, you know, I hadn't realized it until now because it's just like the HUD pop up for where you are. But like, oh my God, it it like, when I saw it, I was like, oh my God, that's, that's such a cool, that's such a cool little detail, cool little moment. And it is, you know, it's in the third act of the game. It's in the part of the game where all the NPCs are being like, go, 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 go. You have to like push forward right now. You have to go. So it's easy to miss. Like you were talking about earlier, Buck, it's like very easy to be pushed by the events of the game past past it yeah and i definitely was uh there was like a portion where there was like a whole area i just chose not to explore because i wanted like i usually ignore urgency in games but when i ignore urgency in games it's like not a first person shooter and yeah and so it was be since it was being urgent in the first person shooter i guess my brain was just like go 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 you know yeah, I do. I do feel like there are moments where the choices of medium for this game get in the way of the beauty, the things that you can find beneath the surface. I think so too. I think if that exact same apartment complex were in an earlier level of the game in the first act, I think you both would have like probably been blown away by it. But like only now, since I've, I understand like what's going to happen in the game and like that you don't actually have to like breeze through those parts that I actually like really like was able to kind of sit and think about those things in the later part of the game. Another thing that struck me was like how ruined and terrible Bioshock becomes as you move through the game where like in earlier parts of the game, you're still in the areas relatively untouched by the civil war. And so like all of the like neon signs are intact, the alarms still work on the windows like all the streets are clean and then like by the end of the game there's just like piles of burning newspaper derailed trains and like the splicers have clearly like taken over the communities and like barricaded all the doors and stuff like that yeah i think it works really well as a a, a overarching concept of narrative a narrative body because nothing is ever right in rapture right there is no there's never any there's never any chance for you to misconceive that this is anything even approaching a utopia right Mm -hmm. but even past that it does allow itself to put its best face forward where it is at least like wow there are a lot of messed up people here 
but maybe the you know the society the people here are worth maybe there are people here maybe there are aspects of this worth saving and that slowly caves away the further you get into it and, and but and to your point where you know it's like up front it's like okay well this is at least a beautiful city this is at least a beautiful concept maybe there's something worth saving here and then that just all falls apart as soon as like the further and further you progress into the game so speaking of progressing further and further into the game I want to talk about the final boss and endings in a little more detail than we did earlier. How did you all like the last level in the final boss? So I think escort missions are genuinely one of the worst things in all of video games. <laughs> <laughs> I do not think on average, I, I don't think I could name a single time where I've done an escort mission where I've come out on the other side thinking, wow, that was a really fun and enjoyable experience, and I got a lot out of it as a player. I don't think I can na- name a single time that has happened. I think, and it's a shame, because the story beat of your character having to like give into the system right after they freed themselves is a very powerful moment. It's like, I'm finally free from this mind control, but now my only way to progress is to give in and become a big daddy something that is horrific in and of itself but it's that moment is so degraded by the fact that you have to just sit around and wait for these little girls to harvest adam out of these corpses that i've i lost the ability to enjoy the the situation so to speak because i had to just sit there and wait so long for the harvesting to happen and now I will say, as an as a side note, I played this game on hard. Apparently, that was a mistake. I just, as someone who plays a lot of video games, I was like, ah, oh, I'll play the game on hard. And I would say the scaling in this game is like not great as far as difficulty is concerned. But that's another discussion. So I do think my experience was a little bit lower as a result of that. But in general, I think escort missions are just one of the more miserable things you can experience in games. I have to be honest. I grew up playing doom then quake then unreal unreal tournament and you know up into like call of duty i do not love the gunplay in this game in general and (laughs) having to do that escort mission and doing that with a character who is purposefully not as mobile because he has telekinetic powers that are not just guns, right? Like, I understand why this game was designed the way it was, but having grown up playing a lot of PC shooters on PC, console shooters with a controller and all that have never been my favorite thing to sit down and play, specifically because at this point, I'd reached, like, a decade of playing these style games in better circumstances, right? And I really, the the escort, I personally don't hate escort missions in specific concept, like in non-first-person shooter things. Like if you want me to escort something in like a flight simulator or whatever, that's an interesting, meaningful escort mission, I think, because that's what you would be as a combat pilot, right? But that's literally outside, (laughs) that's outside of this discussion. I really disliked, the specific going through that process of walking the little girl down the hall. I thought finding the big daddy suit and turning yourself into a big daddy thing was very interesting. Question, though, just on that note, just to kind of keep narrative-wise. So you find audio logs where, like, 
actual big daddies are grafted into their suits. You don't do anything to yourself too horrible besides the weird voice box changing thing, which seems like it literally bores into your throat. Yeah, yeah, I was right. about to say that. <laughs> pretty hurry. I would say that's pretty horrific, but... Yeah. <laughs> the big daddy suit falls off when you go to face Fontaine. Is that yeah. because you take it off? And then you don't have the big daddy voice anymore? <laughs> no, you definitely still have the big daddy voice. Oh, yeah, you do? You I didn't hear that. It. You still have it. I didn't uh, hear that. Okay. But... You know, you don't have the time, right? You don't have your character doesn't have the time to like fully commit into the big daddy mm-hmm. suit. It's a little bit of a cop out, I would say. I, I I don't. I think there is the level of like we don't want the players to. There's only like so far you can push a player before it's yeah. like this is this is too much. You know, I don't think they could really fully show how mm-hmm. you know deep and depraved the process was up front i think yeah obviously it's a little disappointing i think if they were to make the game today maybe they could get a little away with a little bit more because i think players on average today are used to seeing more not depravity but just experimentation as far as things in, in games and like show showing more and you know telling less so i don't know i it's it, I, I definitely see your point though where i want you know it would the game have been better if if it did commit more into like the full picture of what it is to become a big daddy. You mean like the, mm. the physical disfigurement and brainwashing aspects? Yeah. <laughs> I think like, <sighs> I think the last level and the final boss of this game are, well, not, I don't, I don't know. I'm still thinking about the final boss because I just did it probably 10 hours ago. The last level is like such a shame. It brings down, it brings down the experience so much. I think with, in a different world where they have sort of a, a better experience in the final level of the game, Bioshock is thought of as like one of the all-time greats instead of like I mean it's 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 remembered as a great game it's remembered as an amazing game but like it could be like a bastion of like what video games could be if it weren't for the final act of the game the areas are like so open and sprawling and filled with like cameras and like splicers and stuff which is like so different from like the claustrophobic like hallways you have earlier in the game the big daddy section is like so frustrating because the the little girl is like fragile she walks very slowly in the middle of the hallway such that the player in their big daddy suit can't like walk around her and like go set up traps to like save time and oh god it's just so frustrating in fact i don't know that part is pretty like terrible on its face i think and then the final boss sam was telling me last night as i was playing like oh the final boss was like kind of dumb and then I, I was think, okay. Well, I don't think it was dumb. My words were, "It's out of place." It it's feels out very place. out of place yes, for the, yeah. what, what the rest of the game is. And I, the game director says in the director's commentary of this game that it was silly and should have been something else. Yeah, <laughs> I was telling while Sam was saying how out of place it was, I was like, "No, this boss is great." I remember you have to like suck all the atom out of him. It's like really cool. He's become like twisted beyond. It's like so great. Um, what a great boss battle. And then it started and I beat him in like a minute and a half. And I was like, ah, oh, My, well. To, <laughs> the, the, the direct comparison I made for Final Boss in this game. Buck, have you played Arkham Asylum? I have not finished it. Okay. I won't get into spoilers. It, well, um, is it the, the Joker thing? Is yeah. that where? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm aware of it. I know, so I, I know what happens. I compare the final boss of Bioshock to the final boss of Arkham Asylum, where it just feels like it doesn't quite fit the theme and the tone of the rest of the game. Mm-hmm. Where in like Arkham Asylum, it's like, yes, you've been fighting all of these all of these p- 
people that have been corrupted by this like pseudo venom right but why but it doesn't make any sense for the joker to inject himself and then to like have this weird fight at the end with the joker in the same way that like yes it makes sense that fontaine is a corrupted man and like he would try to you know gain the power for himself but the way it's presented just doesn't feel as if it fits the themes and the themes and what's given to you throughout the game i think is, is like the best way i can like try to explain how i feel about it i also just think the fight is dumb and bad like it's literally <laughs> drain the health bar press the button when the rest of the game is designed so much better in my opinion <laughs> yeah, it feels kind of rushed it feels kind of rushed so i don't know i i, I was I, I would say i was very let down by like the last the third act of this game in general but especially you know the last section of the third act i you know even though i wasn't really necessarily enamored or like grabbed by the twist i could i still felt the intent and the purpose behind it and then for the game to kind of like fall on its face the way it did a little bit at least from my perspective Mm. it it was a little disappointing to see especially after such a memorable and fun first like three-ish levels of the game mm-hmm. were there any un- other outstanding points themes of the game anything like that that you guys wanted to go over that we hadn't already i will say since we didn't get back to talking about the direct ending i do love the if you save all the little girls ending like i i'm so glad that that ending actually feels good you know yeah yeah you, you get I, I like getting the satisfaction of watching the little girls murder murder Fontaine. <laughs> and I I like that you, you save them, you care for them, and, like, you literally have, like, a... You know, it's not implies that they're, like, traumatized forever by what they experienced, which, I'm gonna be honest, in a lot of modern-day game writing, that it, it seems a lot more nihilistic. I think you wouldn't have gotten an ending as straightforwardly good as that. Uh, Maybe I'm being a little too nihilistic, but it feels like in a lot of good endings with games with these kinds of themes, you still get not as feel-good stuff, which is more realistic, but I like that you're able to save these girls and actually give them something, you know, give them a good life outside of this. One more thing I want to talk about the choice. It kind of bothers me that your moral choice your only moral choice and meaningful choice you make in this game is child murder (laughs) yeah (laughs) just so weird just in terms of like there's no gray area in child murder right at least in my opinion it's supposed to be a commentary on like (laughs) are you going to continue the way things are and traumatize and hurt the future generations with mm. the policies of this guy? Or are you going to like try and craft a better world for mm. the future? Which is something that Andrew Ryan is like full breathedly uninterested in, right? Mm-hmm. I, th- I think it's about like creating a better future for the people who come after you. I think, mm. I think that's what it was trying to communicate. And I think the ending, strangely enough, after that f- last third of the game in the final boss fight, I think it like, lines up very well with the themes of the game if you get the good ending because Mm -hmm. it's like yeah these they can heal from like what andrew ryan's sick twisted like desires did to them what frank fontaine's like weird power grab did to them and they can like they can be better they can they can live normal happy lives beyond 
the walls of Rapture. And I, I, I feel like I've been pretty critical of this game so far. I've been sort of a voice of dissent a little bit. So I do want to, I do want to put some praise on the game because I think that that is something that was very ahead of its time. Even though the endings themselves aren't necessarily super well developed. Well, obviously the good ending is like very clearly well developed. The bad ending is like kind of whatever. I do think like giving players a choice as far as whether you want to save or kill the little girls is something that was, I think, very ahead of its time. That's, you know, the concept of like killing or saving NPCs is something we see a lot now. Yeah. I would say it's a pretty common aspect of a lot of modern design sensibility. So I do want to give some praise and like in that. On that point, I, the thing that I was thinking about before this discussion that I had to look up to me, this game and fallout three are contemporaries, Yes, but this game came out before fallout three. So it kind of pioneered and innovated a lot of what it did before fallout three did because to me, these games are fairly comparable to the point that they kind of wanted this game to be more of an RPG, but were actively told for it not to be right. And I was interested because like it, it was surprising to me that this game came out before fall, like well before fallout three, at least like a year before. And year before. I was like, Oh, okay. So, cause I, I was, I, I thought this game maybe felt a little feature light, but figure, because I'll be honest, this game period, this period of video games is a blur to me. Cause I played guitar hero and rock band and then like played sports and hung out with people and played music uh during this time as opposed to playing a lot of video games so yeah it, like it, i do think this game innovated a lot more than it seems if you weren't around at the time to actually experience what it was doing like right when it came out yeah yeah i i definitely get that um the way, the way i kind of just the way i describe this game is it's it's very much a product of its time Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as someone who plays a lot of games that as someone who plays a lot of games, <laughs> I, I can definitely see the age of Bioshock with just some of the design choices. You know, I think it does hold up. I think like one thing, especially this is more to do with game design than the story specifically is definitely like a fresh breath of air for me, especially someone who plays like uh, several shooters is like the trappings and tropes of modern day shooters or shooters made after the year like 2010 are not there in Bioshock and it feels so good (laughs) I don't know (laughs) to me to play a game where you can't where you're not limited to carrying two or three weapons you have your entire arsenal with you all the time resource management is a real part of the game as far as like managing ammo and maximizing like damage against enemies through min-maxing your ammo types and like there's it's not cover based chest high walls all guns are not like hit scan that god it feels so good counterpoint there's no aim down sights and the movement is some of the worst i've experienced in a shooter in there's, a while there is aim down have sights. you tried to have you there is yeah how well for every gun except the chemical thrower and the shotgun what what is it what is the button because I was never told, um, I, and I never I, used it. I played on console. You click right stick. Oh God, that sucks. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the <laughs> pistol, the crossbow, the machine gun. Okay. those all have aim well, down sight. That that's that's my bad. In that, 
but uh, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna set my foot down on the movement. You ever try to jump on something in this game? Oh, it's bad. Like it... <laughs> it's, it's not good. It's not good. I'll give you that. <laughs> Sometimes you like see like a train car or like a hallway, and you're like, oh, I can get into that, and then you just like bounce off the top, and you're like, what the, <laughs> what is happening? <laughs> I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm just saying like yeah. a lot of things that became industry standard later are not present in this because Call of Duty hadn't didn't have like a chokehold and like all those like 2010 Rainbow Six games didn't have like a chokehold on the mm -hmm. first person shooters genre and it feels really nice to just be able to carry all my weapons and like enemies don't explode in a shower of bullets and health kits and stuff. It really like engages the synapses quite a bit more than other shooter games. Are you, you saying like... Doom 2016 wasn't the best game ever made? <laughs> I have not played Doom 2016. Oh, no. The only thing I'm going to say is uh, the only thing I didn't like about the gameplay mechanic, or the main thing I didn't like about gameplay mechanics, and again, I think this was because I played the game on hard instead of normal, is just, I, especially in the third act, every enemy just felt like a resource dump to the point where I was like, I'm just going to run past the enemies. I'm not going to engage with them anymore. <laughs> I'm going to just try to, like, I just want to go get to the rest of the story i did find i did find it very frustrating where i was like all right i'm out of bullets i and i'm out of eve what is it called the stuff you, i know eve, it's called eve eve hypos eve hypos a lot of eve hypos so now i guess you kind of get like soft locked in a way where it's like you run out of resources and you're like there's all these enemies ahead of me and i don't have anything i have a wrench i had to kill i had to kill that big daddy so now i guess i'll just run past them and hope for the best. <laughs> I really this think is why... the difficulty scaling is not done well. I think like normal mode is like really the only one that was optimized super well. That's why I played the game on easy. <laughs> you had to play. You, you had to play. <laughs> I think like the, if I had to think about like one thing just as far as game mechanics that was super frustrating, it's that every animation can be canceled, but none of the oh. like you don't get any benefit from doing anything unless the animation fully finishes. So you can animation cancel uh, doing an Eve hypo, reloading your guns, beginning to dash, but like none of like unless you finish the animation, you don't get the Eve, or like unless you finish the reload animation that you could cancel at any time by doing any other thing, you don't reload your gun. Yeah, that was oof. That, that was got rough. me. That got me killed so much because I'd be like, oh, I I reloaded my chemical thrower. Let me change to that. It's like, oh well, no, I animation canceled it ninety percent of the way through, so I only have twenty chemicals in the chamber any anything else anything else we want to cover i think we've covered pretty much everything all right bioshock can be found in its original form on pc ps3 and xbox however you can also purchase a remastered version which includes the first two bioshock games as well as bioshock infinite for 20 dollars on every major platform including steam the ps4 and 5 store the xbox and the switch game store I would highly recommend playing it yourself. Just understand that you're going into kind of a dated game. With that, this has been Level Zero Literacy. We thank you all for joining us today. On our next episode, we will be playing the game Not For Broadcast. Uh, as always, thank you all. Thank you.